Some people are cool for a bit. Some people are never cool. And then there's some people that are really cool. And I guess they're kind of cool for life. They're lifers. Deep cool. I'm aware I sound like a bit of a fool right now. Anyway, in my life, somebody that has been deeply cool is DJ Hell. He has been at the forefront of electronic music since the late 80s. His record label, International DJ Gigolos, played not only a massive part of my own life, but a massive part in the wider culture. His label was the place to be in the early 2000s for Electro and Electro Clash, signing and discovering artists like Miss Kitten and the Hacker, Fisher Spooner, Vitalik. He also signed and discovered me when I did Sunglasses at Night with Zintherius. I've had an incredible time with DJ Hell over the years. We're good friends, and he's somebody that I always looked up to. He inspired me and many other people in terms of how to run a record label, the, the love and attention to detail in A&R, in artwork, having a sense of humor, sticking to your guns. These are all things we talk about in this hour and 40-minute interview I loved talking to him, but I always do. He's incredibly funny, incredibly knowledgeable, a real original. They just don't make him like DJ Hell much anymore. Obviously, he plays a massive part of my own life. I don't think I'd be here, or at least my career would not be even remotely what it is if it weren't for DJ Hell. We cover all kinds of topics, obviously, the origins of dance music, his own DJ career, the music he's made, the places he's been. We talk about some of the other artists on the label. And uh, it was a really, really enjoyable conversation. I hope you enjoy it. I'm very proud to present my lifelong friend, a mentor, an inspiration, and an incredible figure in electronic music, DJ Hell on Last Party on Earth. Last Party Welcome to Last Party on Earth, DJ Hell, um, old friends. Hello. <laughs> I'm very excited to talk to you. and I mean, more just like old friends, just getting a chance to talk. And there's so much history. We have history together. So this morning I started listening to, I woke up early and I was going through Gigolo records. I mean, I have like all of them, I think. And I, it, all of a sudden it like just hit me, it is fucking crazy how many good records there are. Yeah, not an A&R guy, you know, he's a good, <laughs> he's a good friend. Yeah. No, but I mean, you, you were there from the beginning, you know, what, what was sunglasses? Was it number, what's the catalog? 80. 80. You sure? I think so. I would say 40 something. I don't know. You know better than me. I thought it was 80 because I remember being excited that it was like the 1980s, that the catalog number. Oh, yeah, was- yeah. Oh, so, okay, I have to check. <laughs> I was starting the label and, and the concept was we do no promotion. It's only on vinyl. And when you want to have it, you have to go to the record shop and buy it. it was That was my concept. And mm. I changed it like, I think, one or two years after that immediately because there was so much attention with... Uh, Jeff Mills and Chris Corda and uh, uh, Christopher Just, Disco Dancer. And then we had Zombie Nation already getting big, you know, and Vitalik. And it was it was a fantastic time, maybe the best time in my life, you know. It's, 
it hold it on for some years. It was, it was I'm still, you know, I'm still think about how crazy that was and, uh, and what impact it had, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the music business or let's say dance music business. And, uh, well, okay. There's so much. We could talk like for, well, we usually do, but we could talk for hours and there's, there's all the artists and the list is crazy. I mean, it's, it's Fisher Spooner and Miss Kin and the Hacker and like you said, Jeff Mills, Dave Clark, but also Chris Corda and even Justice and KLF. I mean, it's pretty much everybody. So it's crazy. Even too many DJs. Too many DJs, even like Boys Noise. I mean, pretty much everybody. So I'm just going to try. We got the label. We have your own productions. We have your remixes. We have the Gigolo era, the electro era, the old era. I want to try to start, like go back to a bit of your history because I don't even know it. So what's the first record you ever bought with your own money? I heard it on the radio and it was a, a, a single called Do The Strand from Roxy Music featuring Brian Ferry. And I, I was like maybe six or eight years old. I never thought I would work with the guy later on, you know. So I, I just heard this song, the music, and I felt there's something different to all the other music I, I knew before. So I I think I asked my mother to buy it for me. Does it, is it is that okay or? It counts. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it counts. Okay, okay. So my mother bought me Do The Strand and I loved it. And, and there was a lot of compilations that time. The label was co- called Keytel. Oh yeah, Keytel. Yeah, Keytel, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know that? Okay, so so that was my first DJ uh, kind of experience. I, I was playing with the Keytel, Keytel records on a stereo system where it was a compact system where you have like radio, cassette recorder and a turntable. So it was a kind of studio work because you can record the record and can do like mixtapes, you know, like different records. And then you can record also radio uh, music. And, and you were hoping that the, the guy who presents the, the songs were not talking into the music. So it was it was already the first mixtapes when I, when I was like, I don't know, 10, 10 years old. There's a new sensation. So you grew up when you're very, very young, when you're like that age, were you in Munich or were you outside Munich? Outside Munich. In the countryside, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Traunstein. You know it. I, I think you played there. At the, I did. Uh, I've yeah. been to Villa. Uh, yeah, Club Villa. Yeah. We used to drive there. We used to drive from Munich. There was the Club Villa. That, that's, that's even the city where I was born. And so that was the area where, where I come from. Yeah. So when you were a kid, let's say 10 years old or whatever, and... I mean, how early were you when you started to think career or, you know, where you started to think that music could be more than, uh, more than a hobby? We were a group uh, of guys and we were fed up with the music, what, what was playing in the clubs and, and in the bars around that area. So we thought, let's take control of that. You know, we were like eight guys and everybody bought some of re- some records and on the weekend we brought it together 
and there was no future plans for for being a famous DJ or or going into production. We were just fed up with the music, and we said. There's new wave, there's punk music, there's already electro German electronic music. We want to hear that music and we want to dance to that music in, in, in that countryside clubs. And so how, how old were you? I didn't have a car, 16, 17. So I can go there with the bicycle or, you know, or, or some. Oh, no, we were, <laughs> we were on the street, like, uh, uh, what was hiking? What was that? When you, when you stop a car and ask, ask hitchhiking and you ask the guy to bring you to the next town so that was that was the main thing you were hitchhiking to the next town and then to the next town and uh, and there there was a club called the Stiege in, in English it's like steps we got the first chance to play there on the weekend and it that went popular because more and more people were into that music but when you say play that this is this is before the modern idea of DJing right yeah it was 76 77 so you're bringing records and playing yeah. the records. You're not mixing the records. Kind of mixing. There was, the, uh, I think the turntables were called Lenko and you, you couldn't speed it. There were 33 and 45, but there was no uh, uh, control, like synchronize it with another record. So you were like fading in and fading out. And also very important, the club had like an, a room full of records where it was owned by the club. So a couple of hours before the night starts, you went into that room and were taking out records you're going to play maybe. Oh, yeah, like the house collection, like the in-house collection. Yeah, 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 yeah. We were, didn't even have a name for that thing or a group or I didn't have a name. We were just like a bunch of friends playing the music we like. So there was new wave, uh, like uh, Material, uh, Bill Leswell stuff, Pill, a Human League, you know, early Heaven 17 then some Deutsch punk and, and then some English punk like uh, Damned or, or Clash was big stuff. I wouldn't call it DJing. It was like playing music in front of your friends. And in your group of friends, that first group, were you like a leader or were you like more ambitious or it's really not at that stage yet? You're just having fun. I remember that at one point the guy said, I can't give you the records again and again every weekend, you know, <laughs> because it's my records and it's, it's not, you know, so, but I didn't have any money. So it was, it was fighting for the records, you know, because I was already in that kind of mindset up. I want to play the best possible, you know, I need this record. You have to give it to me. Yeah, yeah. I give it to, back to you on Sunday, you know, it was me and another guy. We were like leading the group because we were really behind it. I spent every money into records and it, the question was, seriously, should I buy records or food? Mm. And I always decide buy the record. Yeah. Those times I had nothing to eat. So I, I was thinking going to some friends or to some other families where they where, where I get some something to eat. You know, it was not spectacular, but I always decided uh, to be with the music. And from that small club, it was more like a bar club. There was a guy who said, I have an idea. I want to give you an official, like, uh, not a contract, but I want you to play every weekend with my friend. You got the Sunday, the friends got the Saturday. It was like, that's big. Wow. I'm now I'm 18 years old. I got an offer to play every week in a club in front of my friends and all these other people who came. So there were, and it was like in a very small town, really, really small town. But it was maybe maybe the trick that there was no attention with the police or other things. So you can do what you want. 
It was really like in a very small town. It's like off off the map. It was called Kirchweidach. <laughs> <laughs> there was maybe, they were like confused, but on the other side, they thought, are oh, they looking funny, but they don't do anything wrong. You know, they just, they just meet there on the weekend. But I was so, it was, that was the start for me to being a, like a more professional DJ because I always thought I can do good and I can do maybe better than the big DJ names in the big towns in Munich. Munich was the end of the world for me already. So when was Giorgio Moroder and stuff working in Munich? Is, is Munich already like has a reputation internationally or it's more just because it's so close and it's your, it's just the big city for you? I mean, Giorgio Moroder, I feel love was already uh, around in 76 or 77. Did you have a connection in your head that Munich was this place where, where specific music was already being made? It was called Sound of Munich, but I was not really connecting it with Giorgio Moroder. For us, it was like a Donna Summer track and a Patrick Coley remix, you know. Mm. It was set a 15 minutes Patrick Coley. I didn't know who is Giorgio Moroder. I mean, we, we found out buying... George Moroder tracks, but it was what he did before Donna Summer. But it was kind of strange sounding and and not really what 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 I was looking for. It doesn't fit in my world. I mean, later on it did, you know. But uh, uh, the sound of Munich was 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 around, but it was more like based on 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 special clubs in Munich where I was hoping to get a chance to play one day. It was called Club Größenbahn. That means like over the top, you know, it, there was the, the super cool DJs playing there. And uh, I remember went to the manager. She was a very beautiful girl. And I said, <clears throat> I'm, a, you know, I'm a DJ. I'm a, I'm a DJ. And a, I'm the guy from, uh, from Kirchweidach. And uh, I want to. <laughs> maybe you've heard of me. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. It, <laughs> it was very short conversation. I think she said, no, not yet or something. And I, w I was totally just frustrated because I. I, I thought this is the end already of my career. But a couple of weeks later, some DJ was sick or something. And, and I played there the first time. And for that, that time on, I got my own day. And, and, and I took over the weekend. They asked me to play on, on Friday and Saturday. And then they asked me to play on the gay Sunday. And that was, that was the best, you know. Is there a moment where you remember first seeing professional DJs? Let me think. I was... I was I was traveling to London to get the newest records because it was not easy to get it in Munich. And I knew I had to travel to London to go to the record stores. Uh, I think it was called Black Market. I, I just went there and said, I need the white labels and the new stuff and, and the bootlegs and stuff. And that, and, I get, and I spent all my money there. And, and then I went at night, I went to parties with DJs like DJ Bookham. LTJ Bookham? Yeah, before he was a breakbeat DJ, I think. Oh. I mean, it was not easy to get into the clubs. There was also some guys who played like Rare Groove. They played like James Brown. And, and I went to the clubs and then I saw professional DJs, how they do it and how they mix their records. Because in Munich, the, we had no monitoring. There was no mixing stuff, you know. With, but with the first records, like 85, 86, Furley Checkmaster Funk and Daryl Pandy, the we, I realized there's, there's something possible with like putting two of the same records on the turntables and then try to mix it, you know, because most of the clubs, there was no Technic turntables, no 1210. 
So it was it was difficult. So I can put two of the same records on the left and right side and then try to understand there is something 4-4 four, four going on and try to mix it. But it, it was a long way to go. I think the first records I mixed in 89 or something or 88. What did your parents think? Nothing. <laughs> they didn't know what was going on? No, no idea. When did they first like get an idea that this is their son's career or... Mid-90s or end of 90s. Oh, shit. They had like 10 years with it. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I didn't have much contact with them, with my father and my mother. And, and they were not understanding what a DJ life could be or a producer or anything, you know. They, Did they have like a plan for you originally? They said, why not going to the uh, police or... Working, work, working, yeah. My father was, uh, you know. <laughs> was your father a policeman? No, he was at the, um, it was, uh, they took care of the uh, uh, borders, you know, where people go oh. from one country to another. So there was controlling uh, things. And he said, why? It's a safe job, you know, for your life. And you got, you know, you don't. You could have been a, you could have been a cop. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, you know, but I was never thinking that way. And, and I learned to be a locksmith. I was uh, uh, be there for three years. And, and then I already knew that this is not the thing what I'm going to do my whole life. I was already DJing in, on the weekend and being a locksmith during, during the week. So I, I was mostly tired when I, when I came to the factory. First thing, I always went to the toilet for sleeping one or two hours. <laughs> and it was, it was not easy because it was not allowed, you know, and you had to play some tricks that they not realizing you're sleeping in the toilet. So by the time you're going to London and all this stuff, in, in your own mind, is it like, okay, this is what I'm going to do with my life? Yeah, I was totally into music already. Colin Dale was one of the DJs. and uh, There was also Colin Favor. Favor and Colin Dale and, and some early techno DJs and breakbeat DJs because I remember the hip house was really popular in, in the UK and mm -hmm. I really liked that one. And so I, I went to some hip house parties. I, I have to search what clubs it was and what DJs, but they went all successful later on. And uh, I was just watching them. But uh, I think a very important thing was I also went to New York to see what's going on in that scene before I was resident at Limelight. To us, Kiss FM radio was, was the main thing because I always got cassettes from Tony Humphreys and uh, at the same time from Red Alert and Chuck Chillout. The Chuck Chillout and Red Alert was the superheroes of hip hop and Tony was the god of house music, Tony Humphreys. That was the late 80s. I went to New York to see how they work and how Tony is doing and I never found out how he did it, you know. It, it, he was like, I don't know how he mixed the records or where he got the records from. Not sure some was like test pressings or songs that were never released. But I was looking for all that stuff was Tony was playing, but it was it was not easy to find. And I remember one day I was 1993, I was AR manager of Logic Records in Frankfurt. I called Tony Humphreys from Frankfurt and his manager. I found out his number and I said, Tony. I heard your tapes and stuff. I need this and this number. What? What? And he said, "Ha!" Ah, he was totally funny. Ah, DJ Hell, ha ah, ha, and stuff. And how you doing? And then he told me what record it was because I was so dying to get that one record. It was not never released, but he told me what it was, and, and then I, I I got it. So Tony was a big influence to to my DJ world. Like when you talk about the '80s and the '90s, I mean, I know you. Me and you have a lot 
in common in terms of, I think, how we look at music, how we're open-minded to different styles. The fact that you already are talking about industrial, new wave, punk, hip-hop, acid house, hip-house, like already all these styles, do you think that is a product of the time or is it something a bit more, I guess you've just always been like that? Yeah, I'm nearly 60 years old now, but uh, I think the 80s was the biggest impact into my life, you know, because in, in the 80s there was uh, Deutsche Welle coming up, there was Electro coming up as the first time hip hop was going to be big. Acid House was there the first time. Um, uh, house music was there in, in the mid 80s. Then techno come up. Early. You know, all these genres were built in the 80s. And there, it was logical for me as an unknown DJ to play all these styles together. That was for me always the ultimate DJ who bring all these styles together in one night and, and not like in a perfect mix, but he knows how to deal with it, with all kinds of music. The, the, to me, that was very natural. And I always thought that's that's my future as a DJ, like uh, this famous radio DJ from uh, UK who died, like uh, John Peel. You know, he was he was master of all styles, you know, and and a lot of people decide to to focus. You know, a lot of people say a lot of people say, no, you know, I'm going to be the hard techno guy yeah, right, right. or I'm going to, do you ever, did you ever wonder why that didn't appeal to you? I, I mean, I think about it all the time for myself, you know, when I see, I, I, cause even take a guy like Jeff, take Mills, you know, obviously he, he grows up with hip hop. He grows up with a bunch of, he loves eighties and industrial. And then as an artist, he, he just finds this more narrow focus and that's not how you or me, I don't think, think, were you ever tempted? Was there ever a time where you're like, okay, no, 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 I'm, I'm going into this one little zone? Maybe for an album, you know, as a concept. But then I was thinking, I did it. Let's, let's move on. Let's do something new. Let's, let's get into something else. And that's what I'm doing now with all these painters and people and lo writing love songs. I never thought I would do that. I want to jump into something that I never touched. So that's why I did the House Music Box album based on early house music and it's not nothing scientifically using 808 909 303 101 sounding like where all did come from and that was the concept for my last album but it was it was kind of limited concept but you know there was i i tried to do it uh, and go that way and uh, and uh, it was it, it didn't sell much but it was uh, uh, nominated as the best album of 2020 i mean it it, it went Best album of 2020 in a, in a German uh, electronic music magazine. And, and so I thought, okay, maybe that was the right way to do it. But um, I always try to do new things, and but there was always my my sound and the hell sound or uh, the hell twist or the hell touch in there. I think that's that's because I, I also worked like you with a lot of different producers, but it's always like, it sounds like you, you know, when you work with Roman Flügel, on the cocoon compilation or stuff, and you know, it always sounds like Tiga, and uh, and I always try to do the same thing with different producers. Well, you have a real sound. You even have your own dance. That's true, as a DJ, yeah. <laughs> like as a DJ, no, no, but but for real. One of the things that made Gigolo such a good label was that when all of us were starting on Gigolo, we were very aware of like, okay, what would what would work for Hell? 
I used to know like, okay, this is a record he would play. Oh, really? Yeah. And that, and that gives people a lot of direction, you know, as, as producers and as artists, but, uh, you have a very, you have a really clear sound. What's so cool is I don't think, I really don't think anyone has the same sound. I still hear it when I put on your records is like, it's, it's repetitive, a bit disco. There's always yeah. tension and then there's something weird yeah. that happens. And, and I can picture you like pumping on your horse, yeah. you pumping. know, pumping. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was, you know, there was, but it's very important. That's what, that's, that's like what you're saying. Also, it's, it's, you really prioritize the new, you want the new experience for yourself. Yeah, I always thought when I was, you know, when Chigilo had like four 12 inches a month and two albums a month, it was like crazy. The distribution company said, you can't do that. It's too much. You know, it's, we're going to lose the attention. But I said, no, I, I will do that. I, I, I going to believe in the artists and I, I have already the next 10 releases ready to go, you know, so I can't hold it back. And, uh, and to me, important was, to give every freedom to the artists. They can do whatever they want. I remember Mount Sims. You know him well. I he was great. Great guy. And he gave me like hundreds of songs, let's say 50 or 60. And I said, Matt, that's too much songs. You know, I can't do the triple album. I, I will put out the best songs together and make like a concept because it's there already and I can hear it. I can feel it. And I will cut out the best, best, let's say 10 songs. And I did, I mean, he did three albums and I think he was one of the most underrated artists. I mean, not when he was there, but after now, you know, who knows Mount Sims now? I mean, well, I agree. But even at the time he was one of those, he was a case of somebody where there was the simple question of like, well, why is he not a star? You know, his songs were amazing. He looked amazing, but there's a lot of, in that period, there's so many, there's so many of the gigolo artists that all the ingredients were there. You know, I had this, uh, it was 2004, five maybe. And it, I had the first option deal with Universal Records. That means if something goes big, like Sunglasses or Mount Sims or Fisher Spooner, they're going to take over when we sold 5,000 copies, units. They're going to take over, make a big video and promote it into the charts or whatever. And I signed the contract. It was called the first option deal. And the first single was Mount Sims, and the track was called Hate Fuck. <laughs> Sorry to laugh. Yeah, I remember but, it. <laughs> but they took it, and they made a video, and he was like, you know, Hate Fuck for Major Company as the first co collaboration. It was no success, of course. Nobody could deal with Hate Fuck here in Germany or worldwide. I want to hate you. I want to be you. I want to... You, I wanna be the object of your frustration and your lust. We break up to make up, we make up to hate fuck. We break up to make up, we make up to hate fuck. So when sunglasses started with you, and I don't know, I was 26 or something, and I was so so happy and so excited. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it, but I learned a lot from you and actually like good and bad lessons, but in terms of the idea of, of no compromise, the idea of, well, an example that always comes to mind I, I, at the time. So I remember when sunglasses was blowing up and I didn't realize it cause it was the first time for me, but 
like you never, ever, ever made me do anything. Like we never did any cheesy publicity. We never did any. Of course not. Well, you say, of course not. But now I realize that that was quite rare. I yeah, mean, you yeah. you have a pop single in the top 20 or whatever, and you're not, because I remember there was one time, there was this time where you and Joseph, he was the manager, uh, or uh, there was this argument over this Viva, there was this Viva television. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Some cheesy television show in Germany wanted us to do something. You know, Joseph was saying, hey, this is very important, blah, blah, blah. It was symbolic. And you were kind of like, hey, it's not cool, who cares, you know? These are kind of the lessons of the KLF or the, these are classic, mm-hmm. classic things about, yeah. you know, not really giving a shit so much. Anyway, they, they all really stuck with me. Same what you're saying about, you know, having a lot of releases or all these things where you're just really going with your own instinct and you're not, you're not listening to the, the rules. Uh, I think we made Chigolo and made their own rules. You know, we, we tried to do our own thing. And I remember uh, saying to, uh, a lot of offers and bookings. I said, no, we don't play in, in clubs like that, you know. <laughs> Even, you know, it was like commercial clubs, but they want to book us because we also had the booking agency. And I, I remember saying a lot, we we don't play mu- our music in this kind of club, you know. This is not fit, fitting with our concept and our our thing, you know. We're going to choose the right clubs with the right people and, and the right promoter. I was really selective with that, you know, and... Uh, um, I remember we did two great videos. You had your concept with your video. <laughs> no, let's, let's. Oh, God. But think, hey, hey, Tiga. I, <laughs> I mean, think all the money in the world went to those two videos. Yeah, but it was already signed to uh, Low Spirit. Yeah, well, they did. They did this really bad, like, James Bond. I was cool, you know, uh, but I. It was okay. It was okay. But in the, at the same time, I did a video with Amanda Lepur, you know. <laughs> this was good. This was good. There was nothing getting in the way of you making that. This was going to happen. It was cool. I was sitting in a meeting with Low Spirit and he said, oh, fuck, we have two videos now. <laughs> and, and I was like, how can I tell them there's two videos, you know, <laughs> and we're going to burn so much money. I think it was Westbam's idea. They said, that's a new thing. We're going to promote it with two videos. Nobody did that before. You know, it's like a new thing. We have one video for Viva, and then we have a really cool uh, underground, a crazy video with Amanda Lipur. We're going to promote it like with two great videos. So that's the, that's the new thing. It was cool. And, and the, uh, the Amanda video, I think it had four or five million clicks on YouTube now. The Amanda video now, I, th- I think, was... Uh... It was very ahead of its time, you know, it was a really, it was a really, I, I never thought about it at the time, but looking back, I think it influenced a lot of people. I mean, there were a lot of people where that was the first exposure to Amanda Lepore, you know. I have a question, it's maybe not an easy one, just jumping around. Okay. What is the gigolo record for you, the first one that you think of when I say, like, Electro? Like for this period that became the the legend, which is the one for you that really is the one? It's difficult because what's the most important record? I always say the next one, next release is the most no, but important. No, I, I guess, but with, you know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like yeah, yeah, I know, sound, I know what you, know, you mean. I know yeah. which mine, I, like for me, it's probably always, I think was Miss Kitten and the Hacker, maybe. I, I, I won't say Zombie Nation because you can watch the documentation on Weiss, you know, there's everything there. Weiss did a documentation about uh, Florian and, and the song Zombination, why it went so big. Okay. And and uh, 
I think a lot of people saw it. It was done two years ago when Florian was living in, in New York now. And Weiss said, we're going to tell the true story about the, the, the most uh, uh, played a sport uh, home in the world, you know, so that's, <laughs> that's a crazy story, especially if you know Flo, it's like, what? Yeah, what the fuck? there was, you know, Flo is like such a great artist and he always come up with like fake blood on stage mm. and put it on top of his head. He had, had like white clothes on and this like a zombie masks. Yeah. He's a real natural. He was actually like a natural performer. Really cool guy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm saying like to you, peak, peak gigolo style. It was not Fischer Spooner because they came already as an act. They were totally like perfectly styled. The album was ready. There was nothing to change. You know, I wouldn't say, Casey, you don't wear this kind of funny clothes. Maybe you better <laughs> get in that direction, you know. So they had all done and their vision already. Maybe you're right, Miss Kidding and the Hacker, because there was a little 80s influence and And Hacker did like amazing production. Kidding was like just doing some fun thinking Frank Sinatra 82, you know, Frank Sinatra is dead, ha 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 and stuff. And they, they, they didn't, they did, they definitely didn't know that it's going to be uh, successful and, and they're going to make a career out of that album. Definitely not. I think it was a very special record, their early ones. you said about you know the only thing you wanted was to have the best record you know i will never forget so me and you were djing at this uh what's it called u60 in frankfurt oh yeah 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 which was yeah. normally yeah. i think like a hard techno club chris leaving's club i remember so you i i went with you in those early years you know a lot of the time i was just with you you know i traveling with you or we were hanging out and i remember I was maybe dancing or I was in the DJ booth and you put on this track. It was a Vitalik pony track. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You put it on and I was like, I don't think I ever in my life wanted a record so badly. And then like a half hour later, you put on another record and I go and it's the same record. Yeah. And like three or four tracks from this. I remember I had a yellow, yellow, I think a yellow white label. Yeah. And... I just remember, I don't think I ever wanted a record so badly in my whole life as the first Vitalik 12-inch. It's a monster record. A really great record. And uh, he was named as Dima before. And, and he said, I want to do something fresh. And, and his dream was to release a record on Chigolo, he said that time. And he, it was like, that was the greatest thing in my life if, if I gonna sign it, you know? And, and the first time I heard it, I was like, yeah, good stuff, you know, cool stuff. But I, I didn't realize <laughs> it's such a big impact. 
the La Rock track or the other tracks. I thought, yeah, it's kind of 80s, it's kind of rocky, maybe too much. But I, I didn't, I, I surely didn't realize that such a big, big, big record and it, it will change his life. You know, I didn't. But I said, I go for it because it's cool. It's good production. And uh, I'm going to take four of your songs and I'm going to release it. And, and Vitalik record was like, for him, it was like life changing, of course. Totally. I'll just say, in my entire life, I only sent out one demo. I guess it's January of 2000. I had sunglasses at night, and I put it on a CDR, and I mailed it to you. I remember I sent it to Gigolo. And, and the reason I sent it to Gigolo was you had like a sense of humor, and it was cool and open-minded. Anyway, I just remember I was like, in my head, I was like, hey, Maybe DJ Hell will, he's the only guy I can think of that maybe will understand and appreciate this. I sent you the demo and then right away you, you, you got back and it was just so exciting. Such an amazing sequence of events. It's crazy how life works because, you know, if you would have sent a letter back saying, hey, yeah, this is cool, but what else do you have? I, I didn't even like sunglasses that much. You know, like for me, it was the first, one of the first things I ever did. And I thought it was, but you, you, you were a big supporter, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I heard it and I thought, how can I say there was two questions I asked myself, would I play it myself in my set and uh, would it fit on Chigolo or is there something special? And I heard the track and I, I thought, oh my God, I would love to play it. And it's, this is something really unusual and it has kind of 80s feel. I liked your voice. I liked the production. And I mean, to me, it was, was no question. You know, I, I think I immediately sent an email and said, let's do it, you know. Yeah, yeah, it was fast. Do you remember the first time you played it? Maybe I played it from the CD. <laughs> yeah, maybe I made a copy. But when you came to Montreal, we made acetates. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We went to this, I remember. We went to this guy's house who had a cutting lathe and we made uh, acetates and you bought a leather jacket. I would mention that uh, there was a black uh, motorcycle leather jacket, <laughs> really stylish and it had some red, uh, small red stripes on the arms. I still have it. I still have it. Second hand. It was not cheap, but it, because the, the jacket was in good condition, but I was, I was wearing it for many years. I was really proud of it because it had some special shoulders and it was like a like a cool bicycle rider <laughs> 80s kind of yeah, yeah. 80s feel yeah yeah it was I still have it in, in, in my house here Okay, so let's get to a little bit of the music. DJ wise, you didn't do it in the email, but like, can you pick for yourself the idea of it's the last party you ever play? Can you pick an opening record? Is this something you can do off the top of your head? I never do. I mean, as I said in the email, I do at festivals, I think about to have an opener or some spoken word or some soundtrack or some intro, you know, to get the attention from the people. 
I, I do that, but in, a, in clubs sometimes. I'm better. So it's the last party on earth ever. Yeah. Okay. I, there's no intro. I, I, I keep it with Jeff because he said it's, it's starting now. We're here. Let's start it now. No intro. Yeah. Because that time I was, I was teaching a lot with Jeff all around Europe. And uh, I learned a lot from him, how see things and how to DJ, how to work out a crowd, how to... I, I didn't have the three turntable wizard thing. He was he was mastering that when he was a wizard already in, in Detroit on the radio. But uh, he, he was like, when he was on, let's get into it with the first record. You know, it starts there. I just have 90 minutes or two hours. There is no time for an intro. Let's start it now. And I always kept doing that you know no intro maybe there's a last song when you know how it is when the people when the party stops and people asking for more or screaming you play something special you know i would do that but as the intro i, I would go with chef you know play play a record that changed the mood immediately and everybody sucks and in, sucks into your your direction and then you go from there can you think of an example yeah, let's let's think about in purpose make a record from Jeff or something from Axis or or some some great tune, not the best one in your box, but something that gets attention, you know, just some loopy thing or just something else. Because I remember Jeff also turned turned the volume louder, and you know me, I always did the same. The monitoring was very loud, and, <laughs> and uh, I always like like overdid it. It was always in the red, you know. It's funny, I remember for a few, like in maybe whatever it was, there was a year or two where we were, me and you were together a lot and playing a lot of parties. And it's funny because there were times where like, I felt sometimes like I was like a babysitter, you know, like I, like I was a little, uh, yeah, yeah, like yeah. I would be yeah. changed, lowering the, you know, like making sure everything was okay in the DJ booth and you'd be going crazy. And I would, I'd, I'd, you know, try to keep it like, uh, like I would, like I was the grown up. <laughs> I remember that. I remember. Yeah. 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 <laughs> did you sign the Jeff Mills record? How did that start? I mean, it, that's not, everybody out there listening should know a normal person can't sign a Jeff Mills record. This is not possible. It's not possible. Right. But we were becoming best buddies and uh, he invited me to his uh, wedding in Japan. I was one of like 10 people who were there wow. with his great wife, Yoko. And uh, I mean, we become really, really close friends and uh, talk a lot during the flights, you know, in the hotel. We stayed at the same hotel. So, we become really, really close, and and always when something comes up, who's the best one or who who has the greatest ideas, who is really artistical thinking, it's always Chef to me, you know, yeah. today. But he played that record as an acetate, you know, all his sets, this kind of disco stuff, what I released later on on, on Gigolo. And it was always the highlight of his set because it was like crazy disco by Jeff Mills sounding. And I said, Jeff, I know you will not release it on Axis or Purpose Maker, but I have a label who, <laughs> gonna, who would like, I would love to release it. 
It's too much fun for Axis. <laughs> yeah, I said, you, you will not do it. I know you, Jeff. You will never release it. You know, it doesn't fit on your label, but I would love to release it. And he said, yeah, you can have it. And he gave me the dot cassette with four tracks on it. Wow. And I just released it. And he said, let's make it simple. It's like a one-sided contract. Both sides sign it and that's it, you know. In 1997, 96, Jeff was the king of all kings. He was master of techno. And, and he just gave me a record for nothing. I paid nothing. He just gave me the dot and I released it immediately. And, and then everybody was thinking, wow, what's the Gigolo records? You know, and then. That's how I heard about Gigolo first time. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, we sold like I think 10 or 12,000 vinyls. Uh, immediately, and uh, and then there was Chris Corda, Save the Planet, Kill Yourself, and then Disco, uh, what's his name, Christopher Just. I'm a disco dancer and a sweet romancer. Think about that from going to Amazing. Save the Planet, Kill Yourself to be a disco dancer and a sweet romancer. It couldn't be more more diverse. The Christopher Just record, I remember it. That actually, for me personally, like that idea of a catchy vocal kind of a, a simple, repeating, catchy vocal on top of a very driving techno track yeah. was, was, it was a formula, like it wasn't so common at the time. No. It was kind of like pop techno. It was, it was really cool. In between, yeah. Maybe, maybe it was Electro Clash as well. It was very poppy, very funny. Not, not pop, like commercial, just the idea of a little bit of sugar, you know, on top of the track, something you remember at the end of the night, you know? Definitely. It, I, 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 I had license in uh, UK, I had license in Brazil, you know, and it was very big in the gay community because, you know, the disco dancer and the sweet romancer, they, they thought that's, that's something that, that speaks to us, you know, and uh, I, I really liked the song. It was, it was great. So Chris Corda, who a lot of people don't know about, very, very underrated. I was, I was with you and Chris Corda, I think in a bar in Munich, and this is like a few weeks after 9-11, okay? I always, I've told this story before, but I just remember, and I was quite, I was still pretty young and a bit naive, and Chris Corda was, you know, a, a very eccentric, interesting, Total, crazy yeah. artist, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I remember, so this is like right after 9-11, and we're sitting in a bar with you and we're talking, and... You know, I had pretty like mainstream opinion, you know, oh, this is horrible and terrorist, blah, blah. And he was just telling me the craziest shit. He was like, this is an inside job and the Twin Towers are like giant penises. And like he had this great, I remember, yeah. I just remember thinking, wow, like I have a lot. I, I, I had some discussions with him exactly about that, that issue because <laughs> he wants his next record with the Twin Towers on the cover and he's jumping on from the twin towers down to to i don't know and it was he was thinking he gonna use the situation as an artistical whatever move and i i couldn't agree with him i said i will no it was too early you know this is too extreme and uh i gonna follow you with the church of euthanasia you know and, and i gonna promote that yeah uh, <laughs> it's a bit more relaxed <laughs> 
<laughs> I can do euthanasia, but I can't do uh, 9-11. Tiger, there's so many stories with Chris. I'm not allowed to talk it here now. This this is too, you know, it's not good for Chris. It's, and But there was some points where I said, Chris, I will not do it. I will, Gigolo will not support it in that direction. This is not part of bill. This is political and people will misunderstand it. I, re I remember being shocked. I was shocked too. And we had a lot of arguments and I said, I will, I will not follow, you know, this, I will not support that. And I'm gonna, you know, push you with your career, but I will not go deep in that direction. There was other issues. I, I will not talk about it yet. One thing, I always yeah. got some extras, sorry. Yeah, yeah, extras, extras. <laughs> This is all extras. So, so Honey D. Shaw, you know, you know her well. Yeah. So she said, I want to do a remix of uh, Save the Planet, Kill Yourself. What's the track about? I mean, like two months ago, I said, Honey, that's like an old Chris Corda track. Seth, uh, Seth Troxler plays this stuff a lot. Oh, uh, yeah. He, he, he's a big supporter. Ah, really? Okay. So Honey said, I never, uh, what's the record? I w would like to... Do a remix. So Honey is doing remixes of Save the Planet, Kill Yourself. Oh, now. great. Uh, 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 Chris gave her some vocals and some, not the original parts because he don't have it, but he replayed it. So maybe Honey did it already or see, she's working on it. Oh, so great. This will, this will become some attention now, this year, you know. Yeah, I will release it on Gigolo. Hey, so, uh, well, we're just jumping all over the place. So... A guess similar to that nobody can sign Jeff Mills. What's the deal with Doppler effect? How did this happen? Oh, well, I went to Detroit. <laughs> And I know, again, we're talking about some serious personality. Uh... Um, I, I would, it was like, you know, he was hiding behind. This is Gerald, right? Gerald McDonald, yeah. Like uh, he had a lot of, lot of names, you know, as he was Japanese telecom. He was another guy called... Der Zyklus, too? Uh, that was back in the days I was working at Hardwax Record Shop. I was working there for some years. and uh, In Berlin? There was this the old one? In Berlin. In the old one, yeah. On a, a Heikenberger Straße? Exactly. I went there. Really? I bought my first Aphex Twin record there. This is where everything started in Berlin, because they had direct distribution from Watts in America. It was ah, hard. Okay. You okay, have Watts. Watts music. That was the main distribution. They had the shit. And, and uh, Hardwax, uh, was, uh, Mark Ernestos was clever enough, the guy from Basic Channel, to ask Watts about direct distribution. And, and uh, Hardwax was the only shop in, maybe in Europe, who get the uh, US pressings first from Chicago, Detroit, New York. So it was amazing to work with and get connected with all the people. And uh, there was the seven inch from Doppler effect coming in from Detroit. It was one or two, three, seven inches Doppler effect. And I thought, wow, this is so amazing. This is so great electro. It sounded like Kraftwerk, but it's from Detroit. And then I, I, the, my concept was already in 96, 97 uh, to bring that together and call it Gesamtkunstwerk. So I found out who is behind it through another guy in Detroit. Uh, his name is Anthony Sheikh Shakir. Okay, he released yeah. something and he was good friend with Gerald. And he said, yeah, let's meet, let's meet Gerald and, 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 you know, talk about it. And Gerald was, was totally behind that idea. And then we did the cover with this like black Russian looking uh, symbol. It was, it's a great cover. It was Andy Orell did it yeah, in it's a Vienna. Beautiful cover. 
And I said, why not collect in all the seven inches and you give me some new tracks and it, I'm going to release it as a double 12 inch and as an album and it says Doppler Effect Gesamtkunstwerk. It was my idea and he liked it. And, and, and from that on, he went really like world known and very successful. He was kind of keeping everything in secret, no photos, no interviews, you know, no co contact, no, no touring. But I thought this is something really special. I'm, I'm, you can hear, I'm very proud of the Doppler effect thing because it was, it was my idea and I was successful. I mean, I paid him a lot of money. ever wonder why these people the very really really particular artists why they trust you because i'm i'm acting like an artist i was an artist myself i was not a business guy i always come back to jeff mills idea he's he always said we don't want this monkey business that means the monkey business was major business so we do it the way we want to do it and i think Gerald realized that with Gigolo, it's a different way of seeing things and let the artists do what they want, you know, keep them pushing and even invest in them. I know I paid a lot of, a couple of thousands of dollars for like an advance for the album. And I said, Gerald, I totally believe in you. I love your music. And I was acting as a DJ and a producer and an artist, not as a musical uh, 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 professional guy, you know. And I think he liked me because I was good buddy with Anthony Sheikh Shakir and uh, I was good buddy with Jeff and I was very good buddy with Matt Mike and the, you know I was I was not on the same level but they respected me the way I, I was or I was DJing and and they respected Chigolo and um, um, I think I found always a way that's also Jeff Mills formula there's always a little back window open in the house you know if it's closed in the front Just look at, there's a little window there. And I always remember that because it was not easy with Gerald. You're right. You know, it was not easy to talk to him. I, I found the back window and I said, Gerald, we're going to release it. Here's the deal. Here's the advance. Here's the cover. Here's the name for the record. Let's do it. And he agreed finally. It was not easy, but he agreed finally. It was cool. I love the idea of Jeff teaching you about the back window look I'm, yeah, i'm exactly yeah. the same way with my label the, the you know it it comes nobody's stupid people know if you really love the music people know if you're cool or if you're full of shit you know but one question i have for you is like so on, on turbo for example there's people like someone like gasafelstein okay so like he was my favorite um, and I signed him early and developed it. And then there's that time, th th there comes a time where I guess he becomes too, a bit too big or, or he, he some, some, there's, there's a fork in the road where I have to let him go and he has a, you know, whatever. I was always okay with that because I didn't really want to get bigger as a label. And I, I didn't, I didn't really feel it. I mean, in, maybe in theory, but I didn't really feel it for you and Gigolo. I know, I mean, you guys had crazy shit happening, especially around the electro times and Fisher Spooner. Did you ever seriously want 
to, to go to that other place? Did you ever want to, to get to that level where nobody leaves, you know, where, where you can, you, you kind of take it all the way, if you know what I mean? I tried. Um, maybe I was not ready. I, I don't know. I, I, I thought I gonna go like warp records and, and gonna open my, uh, department of doing documentations and movies. And there will also be department of fashion, you know, and there will be a going direction more in the art art way, and and it's all co collected in one big family. And I remember, you know, we had an office in Munich, and another of a second office in in uh, Berlin. I had two offices, I and I, I I tried to you know keep it going, but there was the break. The first break was when the distribution companies went bankrupt. It was EFA and it was on the peak time around 2004. They went bankrupt and and I lost so much money. I mean, I could kind of deal with it. But then I went to another distribution company called Neuton and they were bankrupt two years ago <laughs> before the music in industry collapsed. And then there was the bank, you know, the uh, the the... I call it 2008 when all the banks went bankrupt. You know, there was kind of cry, financial crisis. So it was going up and down. And I was like, you know, I, I can't hold like two offices, pay so many people. And another break point was when, uh, uh, you know, I can name it, when Susanne went to uh, doing their own booking agency. And that was kind of difficult because the, the one secret with Chigolo was like, all, to, all artists together in one agency as a label and as a booking. And when the booking was split, I kind of, I lost a lot of power because I had not the attention to the artist directly anymore. I mean, there was, you know, uh, uh, a new booking agency, but it, it was, it's hard for an artist who goes with an agency for many years and they're very, trusted and very respectful becoming friends and stuff and so there was a lot of issues you know the booking thing and and i couldn't build up a new strong booking agency then joseph was gone he went to another company i had a new label manager there was so many changes going on at the same time i was touring worldwide promoting all the shit and doing remixes working on my album i had i i mean i don't care i had no private life but i because to me it was like there is no private life and business life. To me, it was all one artistical life, you know. So um, I tried to survive and, and, and you know, in, invest a lot of money of my own money into Chigolo. But if I wouldn't do that, it would be dead after the Neutron distribution uh, bankruptcy. It, it would be dead, you know. So I think Chigolo is, I think it might be the best record label of the last uh, 20 years. Thank you. I like I like to hear that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah. and now and now it's not like I'm saying it when I'm in the middle of it. I'm saying it now, like when I when I look back. This morning, when I was going through records, the thing that really hit me is not the hits. You know, okay, yes, there's a million hits, but the quality of like the B sides, the quality of the album tracks, like in the details, it's pretty crazy. Like all like the the there's so many hidden bombs and. Uh, that's amazing. Also on the B-sides, I never made a compromise. I said, if there's no B-side, we do it one-sided. You know, if there's no B-side. I, I had no B-side. There's no B-side. I had no yeah. B-side. We had to get the Chris Liebing remix. And I remember- Was it on the B-side? Yes. And I remember yeah, okay. after, and, and I remember 
I didn't know shit. If I knew how it yeah. worked, I remember. So I got no publishing for the for, because I had nothing uh, on the B side, and yeah. it was cover version. So I would have put anything on the B side, but it wasn't allowed. Yeah, Chris was a totally big fan of the original, and he was already kind of techno DJ at that time. He was playing so called Schranz techno, but he always played sunglasses at night. And I said, "Hey, Chris." You you like a Schranz DJ, <laughs> techno DJ, but if you like sunglasses so much, why you don't do a remix? You know, we're gonna we're gonna release it, and and he did, and I I think his remix uh, was doing quite well. It was cool, yeah. I think they played it at Love Parade. I remember yeah. there was I don't remember when it was. There was one moment for me. I think I I landed in Germany, or people were t people told me like, oh, they played sunglasses at night four times at the Sigasala in Berlin. Or yeah, so I was like. In front of one million people. Exactly. When I played at the Siegesäule, I always promoted the new shit. I, I played sunglasses. I played Fischer Spooner. I played Vitalik. Every year I put the new stuff on. It's like 20 minute set. One million people live on the street will listen to it. And worldwide, there was like a couple of, I don't know how many million people were listening to the Love Parade on radio or broadcast or whatever at the same time. So it was, I used it as a promotion tool as well. <sighs> It was, that was amazing, that period. I have a question. You mentioned Andy Oral, uh, who did the artwork for like Cheap Industries and I guess Disco B. And, and I remember that was a big part of, like I said, the sense of humor and the fun. I mean, the artwork was, exactly, especially yeah, yeah. in the late 90s, things were quite boring. You know, in the techno world, things were quite dry. Totally. Was there, a, when you were growing up, was there a record label that you, in your mind, looked up to? I'm sure there was. Let's see. You mean also with the artwork and covers? And I think it was missing to pay attention of every detail, even of the B side, even of the back side of the record, how it's written down, and you know how how it looks like. And 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 I, I really spend a lot of time on details on everything on everything. I even put the, the stuff into packages for the DJs later on, and I was doing. You know, the, the the information paper was designed, you know, and we put some sticker in there to make it look special. And then we had some stamps on the record and it was really like uh, visual thinking and, and making it like you want to have it. You're going to die for it to have the promo. I remember when Trevor Jackson did his promo uh, white labels, remember with the... The output ones? Yeah, output. Oh yeah, he in the plastic really, sleeve. They yeah, were nice. yeah, amazing. You know, it looked amazing. But I, I don't find a label that was like influential to me that I wanna. Let's see. I mean, there was a lot of labels I loved, but on, on the dance scene, I mean, Low Spirit was never. I know, for example, like Trevor. Trevor would would probably say, you know, Peter Saville and New Order and Factory. You know, th these these ideas, yeah. but because also what's what's also crazy is that you're German. I, I I don't mean it in a in a bad way, but for the world, Gigolo. That's part of what made it so special is that it was coming from a an unexpected place. Maybe it's a bit of maybe a Bavarian thing. It's like on the one side is quite straight. But actually, there's this crazy side. The humor side was always a big part in it. You know, don't take it too serious, but really pay attention, you know. And uh, of course, some people misunderstand that kind of way of joking around. But if you see the covers, I mean, I had big trouble with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Come on. <laughs> Seriously, I paid like more than $100,000 to Arnold. And that was already the end of the story because I was running out of money. I said to his lawyer, 
I don't have that money. You know, I can't pay it. But my lawyer said, you need to pay it. Was there ever a, even a small chance that he would just be cool? It was his lawyers. There's no way of compromising it. So, But even out of that disaster, we made some funny things, you know. We did Amanda. No, Sid Vicious was the next from six. Because yeah. he was dead. He can't sue you. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> then Amanda. And then, you know, the, the, I thought the logo needs a mutation. It, it should go in with time. So, you know, Arnold was, was not possible. Sid was, was like with the electro clash. I thought Sid was like perfectly looking and, you know, has no muscle and, and, and no money and stuff. And, 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 uh, and then I thought when I was in New York, uh, Amanda is the next big thing. You know, she, I love her so you much. You love Amanda. Yeah, uh, you know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so I asked Amanda, hey, Amanda, I want to have you as a label look, you know, as a logo, as, as like a company logo. Why you don't come to my hotel room at the Tribeca Grand Hotel and I make Polaroids photo of you inside of my bathroom naked? And she said, no, okay, no problem. <laughs> okay, no problem. I come, I come around this and this time. This is everything you ever wanted. Kind of, yeah. No, and, um, Amanda came and, and you know that you were there at yeah, Tribeca. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You were there in, a, in another hotel room, maybe at the same time. And uh, Amanda came and she took off her clothes and was stepping in the bathroom naked. And I had a Polaroid camera and made photos of her. And that photos were becoming the logo of Chigolo Records for many years. That was fun. So some records. Um if you had to pick one of your own, and you've done a lot, I mean, actually, I went through it all and you've done a lot of records now. If you had to pick one of your own that you really, really love to play, which would it be? I know it's hard. I mean, I answered that. I said it's the Carl Craig remix of Brian Ferry, DJ Hell featuring Brian Ferry, You Can Dance. The first record I ever did was called My Definition of House on RNS Records. And I would always mm. pick that one because that was that was the start for me in my producing career. And uh, I was totally surprised when this was blowing up. And it, I, I mean, Renat, he sold like more than 100,000 vinyl copies. I can't, can't think about it now, but uh, I, I'm still quite happy about jumping into the music world with such an impact, you know. And uh, I remember... When uh, uh, Renat told me to get do a, a follow up record and maybe sounding like you know same and stuff, and I said no, I'm I'm now I'm now into acid music, you know. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm discovered the 303 in '93, and uh, I want to do acid music now. And he said, oh no, I'm not interested. I remember actually in a car with you and uh, we were driving from Munich to Traunstein and we, we were with uh, tracks. Oh my God, Melvin. Crazy. Yeah. So, well. Melly. Well, and I remember I was in the front seat and you, I don't know if you were driving in the back seat and, it, and uh, I had my follow up to sunglasses to play for you. 
And it was like, it was not so good. And I remember I was so nervous. I was playing it and you were like, mm, um, maybe, maybe not. Oh, <laughs> Follow yeah, so. up. It's okay. But I, I listened to a lot of, I, I went back to a lot of your records. You know, what's really cool. I think it's a very big compliment you can pay to another producer is when I, I went through all your albums and even though I guess it starts in, I don't know, the one with the feathers is what, 94 or something like that? Or? 93, yeah. I could tell, could so it's like that, 25 yeah, yeah. years and you still can hear the common thread. You know, you, you can really, you can hear really, like you said, there's a sound. Yeah. When you made this, the jump from DJing to making your own record, was there a particular reason? Did you always want to produce? I was maybe too late start, you know, with, I was already 30 years old when I started doing my first records that's quite late for a producer you know but uh, I had no no connection with studio guys and I always I always said I don't want to be a technician and build up my own studio I mean I tried I had I still have a mixer up there and a 909 and I tried to bring it together and and you know and, and sequence everything there was no computer at that time it was sequencing you know so I was uh, thinking to have a, a small setup at home, but I was never interested to have my own studio and take care of it and, you know, sitting there. But I, I had already a lot of ideas of, of uh, doing tracks and how it should sound like, and I didn't find the right people. I remember I had like late 80s, I was in a studio and I was experimenting with loops, you know, and I just faded in and out loop things. And, and I remember the people said, the studio guy said, this is no music, it's just loops. And I put it on a dub cassette, but I don't have it anymore. And I think it sounded already kind of like Rob Hood or something, because I really loved it. I remember that. It was it was a, a, a beat construction and a loop and some crazy sound going on. And I try, I just faded around, you know, like 10 minutes loops. And it they said it's not, nobody will play that. But it's not, you know, this is no music, it's just loops. I didn't release it. That was like late eighties, and I'm I'm still I still think that was already cool, and I should you know release it in that time. It would be I would be in a in a production uh, situation already in the late eighties. I always dreamed about to do it, but I I never found out where to do it and when it's the right time or how to do it. So the first record, there's a story about definition of house. I was manage, manager at Logic Records in Frankfurt. And in the summer, everybody went to Ibiza, Sven, you know, and uh, the Snap the snap guys. And I said, because I was not into Ibiza, I was a Berlin guy, you know. Ibiza is like, we are Berlin guys, you know. It's like, it's not cool. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, come on. No, no, no. It's too much sun. No, it was dominated by the English promoters and English DJs. They played cheesy house and, and English trance music. It was not cool. There was no cocoon or or, um, or anything good going on. Sven tried. I mean, he was pioneering the sound there. But uh, I said, when you all going to Ibiza and I'm here alone, why 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 I can't use the studio? And I did my definition of house in the Snap Studio where, where they did Rhythm is a Dancer and I've Got the Power. Oh, shit. That was the studio from them. Wow. And the guy who was engineering Snap was engineering my definition of house music. It was in the Snap Studio. It was like huge studio. You used like two channels. <laughs> I remember like, there, was, like... there was an, 
and sample from another, from a hard wax record, maybe it was Rob Hood, like a drum sample, but then the, the rhythm programming was maybe 808 or 909, and then there was a, a sample from here and there. It was a lot of samples, and then some keyboards we played, and then it was Definition of House, but it was in the Snap Studios. feeling that me and you build music probably in a similar way where it's it's a lot of ideas in your head a bit of art direction it's i hear this in a taxi i hear this vocal here i and then a lot of samples and then someone to help you fit it all together yeah. and then but then the real power is that 100 knowledge like okay that's it it's right yeah. That moment where it's right, you know. One of the things you taught me that was very cool, and I have to thank you for it. I was very lucky because the one of the first things I ever made was sunglasses. And the person who heard it, the message you sent to me was, hey, it's perfect the way it is. Yeah, of course. And that, yeah. that, that feeling of, no, 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 it doesn't have, we don't have to remix it. It doesn't have to be this idea that it can be simple and raw yeah. and that that is perfect. That's a very, I was really lucky because I got that lesson right away. Then it just becomes your habit. And, and I'm happy because in the years since I met lots and lots of people who are not like that. There's lots and lots of people where their instinct is, okay, well, it's almost there, but let's... And I don't like that. I don't like that feeling. I don't have the patience for it, you know? Yeah, it was perfect already. Like, it's the same thing with Zombie Nation Cancroft. I said the original is the original. That's the best record. We don't need a remix. It was kind of lo-fi, the original version. Nobody knows that version. And I always said, even when we license it to bigger companies, and I said, why you don't take the original version? You know, it's good enough. That's 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 the song. You know, we don't need that. A, has the feeling? Yeah, that's that's the song. That's the feeling. That's the best, and it it will it will not be better. But they always thought about yeah, let's do a commercial mix or let's do this chant version uh, uh, from an Italian <laughs> the, Itali the Italian version. <laughs> yeah, Italian idiot DJs who who already pressed a lot thousands of bootlegs, and then there was a point where me and Flo had to decide to to let it go because it was too late to stop it because all these bootlegs were in America and everybody thought the Italian version of Cancraft was the original, was the, real, the one. real one. Yeah. You're lucky that nobody did a chant version with sunglasses. I have a question. When you said, you say, okay, so Ibiza starts and you have guys like Sven and Sven becoming kind of a superstar DJ in Germany. Then at the same time, you have like Paul Van Dyke, And, you know, like, like there was a period where some of the German guys were, were going, getting very, very popular. Did you ever want to be like mainstream DJ? I already thought I'm mainstream because every year they voted number, the best DJs in Europe. And I was always number two for 10 years or more. Sven was always number one. I was always number two. It doesn't matter what I did. You know, it was always number two. <laughs> Sven's always number one. It doesn't always matter Always number one. Does. So, yeah. So to me, that was already very popular. You know, what could I do more? You know, having a hit record or I, I never tried to produce a hit record or anything. You know, I just followed the instincts. And I thought I was quite 
well known. I mean, I was playing in Japan. I was with I was headlining festivals. There was not more to come for me. I, you know, I reached the top, and I was when I was resident in New York with with Jeff at the Limelight. To me, that was the maximum. You know, there was no other things coming. So I was. I never thought I want to be this huge guy with the private chat and like do 200 shows a year. I, I'm more with, you know, DJ Kotze, Kosi. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with 550 gigs a year. Mm. Why should I do more? You know, I get, a, I get like, he get like 5,000 a gig or more euro. And if he had like five, uh, sorry, 50 shows a year, that's okay for him. He needs, he needs to stay in his Spanish house or with his friends in Hamburg. And he don't want to do 100 shows a year. You know, he's fine with 50. Jeff did it the other way. He had like one month, like touring shows like every day. And then the next month he stopped doing it. You know, he was like doing as much as possible for, for a limited time. And you just focus on DJing. You don't think about anything else. It's just... That's quite smart. It's quite smart, yeah, but... I, it, I, I don't think I could do it, but... I would thought after three shows in a row, I mean, I did five or six shows as well in a week, but I always thought that's, that's too much. I can't, I can't handle it. My brain is, is not, Same. not ready. It's melting. I can do things. I'm satisfied myself for three shows and play three different sets and be happy and get back home and kind of not healthy, but kind of motivated, you know, ready for the next mm. shows. But two or three shows a week was enough for me. And I, I never thought being a, a superstar DJ in my world, I was, I was, I was happy. And I was, uh, I had so many offers to play. There was a time in, a, in, a, in 2004, 2007, I always said to the booking agency, you have to, if you say no, it, you have to do it in a nice way because they're already asking like a hundred times, you know, or 50 times and they're waiting since years to book me, you know, when I was big. So I said, please, be nice with the people. Don't say no or whatever. Explain why you why I'm not coming now. Maybe in three years, you know. So it was like that. So how could I get further, uh, Tiga? Promoters were f fighting to get me. You know, they were fighting to to have me on on the lineup. You know, it, I, to me it was the maximum. Well, I think also it's a, this is an example of where I think I share similar with you, like to me, you're the level that you were at was high and it was always kind of perfect because you're kind of at the maximum before you have to start giving up a lot. Yeah. And I, yeah. I know for myself also, it's a conscious decision. It's like, you don't really want to give up that extra time or the extra freedom or the extra control. But I think there's also other people that for them, it's that's that's not how they think about it. It's just... I mean, even at the summer, I remember in around 2000, I preferred to stay with my friend in Traunstein and not going to the festivals. I canceled and didn't cancel it, but I didn't take any offers because to me, it was more important to stay in Munich or with Joseph or go to Traunstein and have a, a regular life. If you take all the festival shows, you don't get to play football. True. And you miss some of the and you miss some of the games, you know? That's unacceptable. True. I will watch a game. It's a tonight it's a DFB Pokal. It's a, a Borussia Mönchengladbach against Borussia Dortmund. It's in it's in a one hour. One second. Oh no, it's in one hour. 
You can watch it. It's on on the soon maybe. I'm gonna watch. Uh, I'm watching Man City against Wolves. When tonight? Yeah, it's on okay. uh, in two hours. So I'm yeah. I became obsessed with football when I met you. I was just starting, and now I'm obsessed and same. I love it. And I remember. I love it. I played with you once. We played a couple of times. I played in your in team. Barcelona. No, we played in Barcelona on the beach. Yeah. This was amazing yeah. when you had the yeah. Spielführer thing. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was fun. That was great. It was James Murphy? Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. James Murphy was a goalie, a keeper. Yeah, it was UK against rest of the world. It was me, you, too many DJs, James Murphy, the other guys from LCD against, and then it was Trevor Jackson, the other guys from Output. It was fun. I think we won. Me and you were attacking. Yeah, I had one Brazilian guy with me, but he was not good. He was just Brazilian. He's like a <laughs> fake, Brazil, fake Brazilian. <laughs> you picked the only Brazilian. Can't play. Okay, so last party ever. What's an example peak time energy i mean peak you gotta this is you this is bomb time maybe i have one the puff daddy featuring kelly's let's get ill that was a remix i did my remix or the original version puff daddy featuring kelly's released on chigolo i will play that let's get ill Did you ever keep records secret? Were you into that? Did you ever cover up the labels and stuff like that? No, 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 no. If, if somebody was asking, I was, it depends on the person, you know, I would give him the information, but because I knew he will never get it, you know, <laughs> why, why should I cover it? It was very hard to find. And, and I, I spent maybe weeks on getting the records. So he had no chance to, to ever buy it, you know. So when did you work at Hardwax? What years? 92, one year. There was another teacher called DJ Rock. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah, Rock. He was my best friend, my big buddy. And uh, I teamed up with him. There was even a DJ team called Rock and Hell. So I was, I went to Hard Wax in, maybe it was 92 or 93. Do you remember this guy, uh, Neutron 9000, Dominic Vuzzi? Yeah, yeah. I was friends with him and I was staying at his house and I, and I, I used to go to the store. I, I don't remember. It's so long ago. I don't remember. Obviously, it was like the coolest place on the planet. But I do remember I bought my first Aphex Twin, this Joy Rex, this black and white vinyl. In, in a, and I bought it. But I remember I would just stay at Hard Wax. And whoa. it's the best place in the world when, you, when you're, there's nothing like working at a record store. There's not, you're the closest to every sick record, you know? Yeah, true. It was, it was amazing. I, I, most of the contacts I get first was at Hardwax because all the DJs who played on the weekend, they come to Hardwax to see what's going on. And it was run by Mark Ernesto's uh, uh, one half of Basic Channel, you know. They had, I mean, I never saw it, but they said there's a secret studio underneath the Hardwax. I never went there, but they say, I mean, there was an open door on the, on the ground, but I never went there. They said they made the basic channel, channel stuff at the basement. Was there ever any bullshit because you were Bavarian? You know what I mean? Like in Berlin, you know, you're Southern German. Like, was there ever any... In the 80s, it was, you better shut your mouth, you know, <laughs> that nobody going to realize. No servus, no servus. No, not, that, was, that was not accepted, of course not. But later on... You know, I was already DJing. I was I, I was working at Hardworks, and 
I remember I was buy Bavarian food every Friday for all the stuffed people at Hardwax, especially Bavarian. Leberkäse. Exactly. <laughs> so I bought, I said, this is the Bavarian fr Friday. And, and everybody was happy, you know, so they, they more and more get into the culture. And, uh, and, and later on, they thought, even in Berlin, they thought it's cool, you know, not cool, but accepted, you know. Acceptable. Yeah, acceptable, yeah. Because as a Bavarian, you, you were not really like a, a cool guy in Berlin. But I was already like DJing in the cool club, so I was accepted, you know. I played at Tresor, Eberg, Planet, so I was already early accepted. Yeah, I remember for me, my, my entire introduction into my, my career and everything was through Germany. All the first steps were through Germany. And it was interesting for me because I had been to Berlin in the early 90s for Love Parade as a raver. And, but then as a professional, it all started in Munich. In a strange way, I always felt like I was from Munich. Like I would defend Munich. I, people would, you know, because everybody was always like, oh, I love Berlin, Berlin, Berlin. And I was always like, I was like working for the Munich Tourism Board, you know, saying how it's so close to Italy and it's a beautiful lifestyle. It is, it is, it is. Yeah, we were not totally uh, like on the top level on the German electronic music culture, but there was some, I remember we both were playing at the Park Cafe, and it, it was kind of on the DJ booth was on we were top. high up, yeah, high up, yeah. yeah. And uh, I think you played like Joy Beltram stuff, maybe kind of techno <laughs> stuff. And I, I was downstairs dancing the whole time. It was amazing. It played a like great, crazy set. It was like unbelievable. It was a lot of people, and it was it was the number one club that time in, in Munich called Park Cafe. Yeah, one of my best Munich memories. I think it was the maybe the first time I was there. And me and you, we left the office and we went for a walk and we just were walking to a cafe and just sitting in a cafe was Robert Gorl oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, from yeah, DAF. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I couldn't believe it was like something you read in a book, you know, like I couldn't believe this was just happening. And it was very cool. Uh, what is a, uh, a record that has made you cry? I did an album with a painter recently. His name is Jonathan Mese, and I did a song in a studio in Berlin. It's called Tricks Studio, and I put some, like, choral in there, kind of sacral, kind of church sound, you know, where people singing like a church. Uh, it's like gospel. And, and his 90-year-old mother was singing on top of it, and I put this gospel kind of sound in the background, I was really, it touched me so much and, and I was sitting at, at the mixer and I was like crying, you know. Oh, shit. And I was, it's true. I mean, it touched me and I, I knew, okay, if it touches me so badly and I cry here because there's so much emotion in there, it's going to be a good record, you know. What is, last party ever, what's a closing record? There was a compilation They said, what's the uh, record that going to play it on your funeral, you know? So I, I said, this would be the same record. It's a, a band from England called The Stranglers. And the song the song is called Golden Brown. Oh, yeah. I know that. Yeah, great song. Amazing. I love it. That's the song, the last song. Golden Brown. Golden Brown, texture like sun, lays me down with my mind. She runs throughout the night. No need to fight. In this fantasy party, last one, 
you're allowed a VIP guest. Like I, I'm giving a go, golden ticket, anybody, alive or dead, and they come to the party. Who do you pick? It's not Amanda. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Grace Jones. I said it already. It's not Amanda. It's, it's Grace Jones. I would, I would love to invite her and, you know, talk to her or make some fun out with her. You know, she, I think she's a great person. Have you ever met her? Nice. I, you know, I did a remix for her once, but uh, uh, we were booked on a festival together, but it was not allowed to go on stage. So I tried to get closer or try to work with her or something, but it's not easy to find the right people who has contact with her, you know. So I, I really, she's one of the uh, greatest persons in music history ever. And I really like her persona. I like her music and I like the way she's doing it now till till today you know she's really really amazing at your at your party who like who's your favorite dj who would play either before you or after you at the after party i think it's it's chef or derek mm. when they on fire on house music it's definitely tony Humphreys in the 80s but uh 90s and i think chef was was the master of all djs you know when he did three turntables i mean jeff was my hero jeff was the first DJ. i, I saw jeff at limelight Maybe you were, maybe you went to the bathroom or something. I don't know. I, and, and yeah, when I saw Jeff the first time I was 17 is like lightning hit me. I was like, okay, this is everything. This is, this is everything. So when I think back to gigolo days, I'm saying gigolo days, not the whole history, but let's say 2000, 2001, 2002. One of the nicest memories for me is just a feeling like there was nowhere else in the world I would rather be. And I know because in years past, in other years, yeah, things could be incredible. You could be, but, but it's different. You know, this was a feeling of like, it didn't matter what the other people were doing. It didn't matter what party was down the street. It didn't, it just didn't matter because you knew it wasn't better than this. You know, for me, I have my own memories, but do you have a specific a moment or a specific memory of that period where you just felt you were there. Okay. Okay. It's the same one. <laughs> yeah. It's the same it's, one, right? Move. It's just, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's so a Barcelona tell, thing. So tell people, cause they don't know, tell them a little bit about this party. I think it's in the documentation, the Chigolo freak show where Tommy Sunshine, you and me are standing in front of the Moog in the morning and you saying, ah, I was, you know, it couldn't be better. It's <laughs> You said, yeah, there was some moment. But, it was okay. You know, it was a good one. It was okay. <laughs> we had a lot of parties, but, you know, we were totally like thrilled and high about it. It was, I think it was the peak, you know, Me too. Of, of all gigolo parties. It was, I don't know, there was, seriously, FX Twin was there. I know. I, I have photos. He was there where, on the left. Where he was right standing and I said, who's the guy? Oh, it's FX Twin, you know. <laughs> And then Chef was there, too many DJs, uh, uh, T. Schwartz, Miss Kitty New. I don't know, like, you know, the, the, it was the closing party from Sonar Festival. So what, is, what year is that, 2001? Maybe, I, yeah, I don't, maybe. And, and I remember that the festival said, oh, we don't like it that you, all DJs are playing at your party with we, because we invite them to the festival. And they were like, yeah, but... But we come, you know, we're going to party, you know. It was like the ending party of the Sonar and everybody wants to come. And so, and the Moo Club was like for 
three, four hundred people, and there was maybe no. It's small. I think it's even smaller than that. even small. Maybe two fifty. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, and I, I remember everybody. Miss Kitty was there, and everybody wants to play, and we start. I don't know who started it. Maybe you, maybe Tommy, <laughs> destroying the club. You know, like putting things. I don't think I started it. That's not my style. But, but someone started. Somebody. But you were part of it. I oh, remember yeah, 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 yeah. In, inside yeah, yeah. the DJ booth. We not completely destroyed it, but, but it was it was quite wild. And I know Melvin was screaming and it was out of control in a good way. And it, it was maybe the highest peak we can reach. And That was the best party I've ever been. That was, I think, the best party. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Uh, there was some... Some footage, some some film footage out of the party, and I remember it was such a high kind of magical atmosphere. It was really like energy. It's one of those things where, like, if you're into music, the history, you know, there's always these. You hear about all oh, the Sex Pistols. You know, you hear about these moments, these little particular parties where people were all there. It felt like that. Later on, I didn't think about it at the time, but later on, I remember thinking, like, fuck. I mean, like Aphex Twin he figured out like, oh, this is a party like I want to go to. Like he left his hotel to go to the party. You know what I mean? I was playing and he like touched me and I said, I think he said, I like your music. <laughs> you know, like, and, and I was like, who's the guy? And then I realized it's him, you know. And he, I, I, I remember that he said also in interviews that he was really into Gigolo that time and you really liked the music we were releasing. And um uh, Maybe he dreamed to be part of it, you know, you never know, you know, maybe he wants to be, but he never sent me a demo. Maybe I should ask him. I remember for me as a DJ, there was so many parties where I would play before you. Or, and I remember that feeling of like, you have the record for the people, you know, you know, that feel yeah. like it's not the same as, yeah. you know, there's many years now since where I feel like the, my favorite record is not going to be their favorite record. You know, when I, when I pull that record out, yeah. it, 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 but I remember that period was like, no, 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 no. You, you know, you're about to pull out this new Vitalik or my, re and, and you know, it's, there's harmony, you know, and it's a very, very special feeling. I also wanted to tell you just, I mean, all this stuff for, we had a whole story together and a history and I, I, we already know everything, but thank you from, from me. But, but more what I wanted to tell you was just as a producer, I listened to a lot of your albums more and more over the years and, and they're really, really good. And I think that as a musician, your name comes up a lot more and more just for the for the quality of the music you've put out is, is really, really good. I, I always put, Everything in there, you know, like the Zukunftsmusik or, or uh, the last album I did in Vienna or, or house music box. I put everything in, in there, my whole DNA, that's, that's the music, you know, that's, that's what's, what's in, the, in, in their releases. So uh, there was, I was, you know, it was a lot of work and I, I was thinking for months only in music, you know, and how to make it perfect and, 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 and uh, Mm. And I was at some point at the, with the Teufelswerk where I said, this is the best I can do. I can't do it much better. I'm, that's it, you know, I'm happy. Let's put it out. And it was, it was not selling a lot, but it had an impact or had, had attention, you know. It's a, fa it's a, it's a great record. It's a great record. 
there was Puffy there and uh, 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 Brian Ferry was there and 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 Earl and Oye and um, I know Felix was not happy with the Puffy thing, but we figured it out uh, later on. You know, he was not happy that I, I used the Puffy vocals. I was in a team where delivering tracks for Puffy's techno album. And finally, it was never released. So in 2009, I I said there's vocals from Puffy where he talks about the After Hour DJs in Ibiza where they're doing their thing and they're not the crowd pleaser or dick sucker. And I asked Puffy to release it, to use the vocals because it's never released. And he said, yeah, cool, do it. I just have a question. It's not always easy to answer. It's something I think about more now than I used to. So you put out Teufel's work is what, 2009? And you said you had a feeling then, maybe I put everything in this. Maybe this is as good as I can make. It's all out there. And that's already 11, 12 years. Where do you get your ideas? Is, is the inspiration still flowing? It's still there. I was in the studio with Richard Bartz. You remember him, Richie? Of course, yeah. Great, very underrated guy. Totally, but he was out of the techno world for many years. He was working for Volkswagen in Wolfsburg. He was making their uh, websites oh, and stuff. Yeah. Do you remember we were in we were in Wolfsburg DJing and there was a raid. The police came in with guns. Uh, yeah, and then it was crazy. It was like Gestapo. Like they the police in leather jackets. They closed. Maybe you weren't there. It was involved. They, they put us all on the ground. It was crazy. They stopped the whole thing. I remember Wolfsburg. There was some shitty parties here. <laughs> 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 but I don't remember why they did it, you know. That's more than a shitty party. <laughs> I don't remember why. It was drugs or yeah, something. Yeah, looking- yeah, possible. It was still, it was pretty conservative down yeah. there. Anyway, so, sorry, you were saying about Richard Parts. So I went with Richie because he bought all this new gear, you know, he's totally into like new developments. And we, we uh, discovered that Roland put all their gear on, on, a, on, a, on a Roland cloud. You can, you know, you can be member and have a 909 on the cloud for a monthly uh, payment or a 303. And it sounds like, exactly like like the analog gear so we were experimenting about this roland cloud you know thing and, and had like new he bought some new digital keyboards and 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 we, we started a track and then i i sampled some prince radio interview from like the 80s where prince is talking about his life and it it's just a layout but i listened to it at home and i, I was like this stuff is great, you know. We just did it, and it sounds so cool. It's kind of melodic, but with the Prince vocals. And and we're going to meet tomorrow in the studio, in his new studio in Munich, and going to work on the track, and I'm totally excited about it because it was just experimenting and, and playing around, and, and suddenly we had this uh, a different kind of ideas together, and it sounded amazing. It's great. Do you feel different working on music now than, for example, 10 years ago? It's the same. You know, if I, if I feel something, if I get excited, if I, sorry to say, if, if I even cried to, to my stuff, you know, it's like, it's emotional. And, 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 and uh, I know exactly, it's like you, I know what I, I like and I know exactly what I don't like. But in the meantime, I play bass lines. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not important. a musician, but I play loops, you know, I play stuff. And I'm, I really like if it's working and if it fits and, and, and I get 
I learn and I learn more and I get deeper in there. And then I'm, I'm always excited in the studio because it brings you pleasure and joy and happiness. And, you know, I love to do it. I, I will do it in the next 20 years or 30 years or 50 years. I don't know. I will always be doing music. Listen, I got the Miss Kitten and the Hacker 12-inch, the first one, at a shitty record store in a tiny little town in Canada, in Calgary, random. And I saw they had done the cover version of Sweet Dreams. And I thought, fuck, I could do that. And that's why I made sunglasses. I didn't know. That's the story. That's how, that's why I thought I could do, I could do that. Everybody can do that. Everybody can do that. Exactly. No, they, they thought it's not for a release. It's not good enough. They gave it to me on a cassette, you know, and I put it in my car in a tape recorder and they said, yeah, it's just some, you know, we choked around and it's, it's not for releases. It's just some, you know, we tried to do something. And I said, that's it. I gotta release it. You know, it's, that's, that's done. That's finished. And they were not sure about it but i thought i gotta do it you know but you, but you were sure i was very sure about it i loved it i remember when they when i i first booked them on a on a on a on a techno or parties in berlin when kitten was singing people were like wow that's why is she singing what what's that all about they did a lot of people didn't like it in, in the beginning but shortly changed you know and it become like something really really popular i mean still till today it made it made their career listen to a Doppler effect record or a Miss Kitten and the Hacker record, now it's very similar to listening to um, a Kraftwerk record or a, I mean, you know what I mean? These, these records are now, they, they, they kind of get better and better with age because they're very, they're honest and there's real people behind them. That's the thing also, Gigolo, they were all real people, like actual real personalities, you know? Okay, hell, uh, fuck, we should, we got to talk more anyway. And I can't wait. I really can't wait till whatever, whenever we bump into each other, we play a party together and, and, and get to share records and, and do the little dance in the DJ booth. It's coming up, not soon, but maybe in the summer after the summer, we hope. I mean, in, in England, they say in June, they're going to open the festivals, but who knows, you know, it's, it's, it's not for sure. But I always think there will be, uh, countries where you can, uh, you're allowed to travel and allowed to go, you know. I mean, I played in Berlin in October in an outside area. It was amazing. It was, was like futuristic uh, kind of movie, kind of Mad Max looking, you know, everybody with masks and covered and stuff. And it was one, for me, it was the best party in 2020. There was 300 people in a box, open <laughs> air. And I played three hours. I was with Alex, with, with Boys Noise. It was the last party we played together and it was such an amazing, it was totally fucked up place. And it was a Sunday daytime and it was raining and it was cold. And I went with a friend and I said, come on, what are we doing here? It's cold. It's raining. We, I play outside. It's three or four degrees. It's, I'm freezing. And, and this is, this is, this could be anything excitement or, or anything cool. And I went there, saw the people 
played the first records and I was I was like totally freaking out myself. One thing is 100%, the longer it goes, the more exciting it's going to be to to play those first records, you know. And A lot of people think this uh, decade will be the craziest of, you know, of many years because people need this excitement. They will party for like for forever, you know. I hope so. I really hope so. I would I would go that way. I would play not every day, but as much as possible. I'm really I'm really missing it. Really missing it. If you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did, you can get extra bonus material by going to www.patreon.com slash Tiga. You join Club Sexor, that's my membership service, and you get exclusive editions of Last Party on Earth. In this particular case, you get an entire hour bonus material where me and DJ Hell sit down and react to our favorite records. It's really, really good. Also, if you like this episode, you should check out the Miss Kitten episode, as well as the Boys Noise, some of the artists that me and DJ Hal both talk about. we got a lot of amazing shows coming up. If you love the podcast, please take a second to rate and review, whether that's on Apple or wherever, and follow us on Spotify. That's it. Until next time, enjoy. Last, last party.